My kids know me well enough to know that uh, a lot of times for me it doesn't take a whole lot of uh, amplification. Um, the kids at Awana, I'm doing, I, I'm having a blast at Awana on Monday and, and Wednesday nights this year. And the reason why is, is that uh, I think really for the first time since we've been doing Awana that I've been able to do, we got a lot of feedback, Kayla. Um, that might help. I think for the first time in all the years we've done Awana, this is the f first year that I've done games on a regular basis, isn't it? Yeah. And so I get to get really loud sometimes with the kids. They get a little rambunctious, and we have these, uh, it's, it's, it's the TNT boys, the TNT boys, so third, fourth, fifth grade boys, and then the junior high boys. So I have the two craziest groups between the two nights out here running around the circle playing games. It's, um, it's a lot of fun. So I enjoy that. And uh, once in a while, are there, any, are there any junior high TNT boys? Once in a while, oh, here's a few. Once in a while, I'll raise my voice, right? Once in a while, not all the time. I haven't even gotten loud yet this year. But, uh, so anyway, I don't maybe need a lot of amplification. I don't know why I was saying all that. Uh, it's been a crazy week. I just want to give you guys a little update. Because there's some that are kind of snickering, wondering, what's it going to be like to hear a sermon from somebody who got a concussion last week? What's that going to be like? Um, last Sunday, um, we're in the midst of our final harvest, if you can still believe it. Like most farmers, everything's already done. Uh, most of the equipment's in the shed. They're hauling a little feed. They're getting prepared for winter. We're still farming. Uh, we're still chopping corn, making silage out of our, our 30 acres of corn that we planted this spring. And uh, it has been a trial from the get-go. We've had more breakdowns, more problems. We, we can't even get through the field uh, with vehicles under their own power. We have to pull the semi through the field with the big tractor just to get it through the field because it's greasy and muddy. And last Sunday night, in a rush to get unloaded after dark, um, I was shoveling out, sweeping out the last of this 40-foot semi, and everybody can see this red spot on my forehead. Like, if you can't see this red spot on my forehead, you better check your glasses. I went head first into a 4x4 four four steel cross member in this trailer and went right over backwards. And uh, that's kind of the way the, day, the week started. Um, I'm going to get into the rest of the week in a little bit, but um, how is everybody else doing? Let's, maybe we should start with how everybody else is. Nobody else got a concussion? We're good? Or we're all good? Ed's like, no. No, he's saying, yeah, we are good. No, he doesn't have a concussion. I love it. Um, I was thinking this week, um, we had quite an exciting week. Um, and a similar week than we had a year ago. Um, but I want to start with a couple of questions. Um, how do we know what, this is the first question, how do we know what God puts high value on? How do we know biblically what God puts a high value on? What's, what's, what's God's rating system, so to speak, when it comes to value? What does that look like? Maybe a different way to phrase the same question is, that, is there a way to know what, God value, what is valuable in God's eyes? Is there a way to know what's valuable in God's eyes? I believe there is. I believe there's plenty of examples in the Bible that gives us a glimpse 
of what is important to God. The shortcut, maybe a shortcut into finding those things out and, and mining them out of the Bible is, is to look at it this way. What does God celebrate? What does God celebrate? Because don't we, don't we celebrate the things that are valuable to us, the people around us? We celebrate uh, weddings. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate anniversaries. Uh, we celebrate holidays that are important to us. So sometimes the shortcut is to look at the things that heaven celebrates to see what's important to God. The Gospel of Luke gives us a look at three verses that describe heaven in full celebration mode. And all three of those verses are in the 15th chapter of Luke, which is where we'll start today. The first one's Luke 15.7, and the second one is Luke 15.10, and the third one is Luke 15.32. But before we get there, I want to say this, is that in these parables... There's one attribute that separates uh, what is important. Uh, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, because I think there's an, there's an attribute that shows God valuing something or someone. And so there is a little bit of a separation between the one and the 99 or the one from the 10 or the one from his family. That attribute is that, <clears throat> that the one, in parentheses, the one, is lost and then found. See, heaven is in full celebration mode over finding the one. Finding the one stirs heaven up in, in, in a particular way. So in the 15th chapter of Luke, we're going to read about one lost sheep, one lost coin, and one lost son. We'll move through it relatively quickly. Well, Sunday night, I smacked my head on a steel beam. Monday night was completely different this week. There's been two times when I've walked out of elder meetings uh, and not because I was upset. Uh, and I've never walked out of an elder meeting because I was set, upset, just so you know that, just to clarify. But there's been two times I've walked out of board meetings uh, because something else Maybe three times, but something else was more important than, than preparing for this week's uh, message this Sunday, this, the coming Sunday. Monday night, as I rolled up here, I started to get text and uh, notifications from my sisters that Lori Albee had gone missing again. If you'll recall, a year ago in August, just a few weeks before Robbie and Katie's wedding, Lori Albee went missing up on top of Huckleberry Mountain and uh, was essentially lost for five days. She was found on the fifth day uh, that morning. Well, Monday, it was like, uh-oh, who hit replay on these events? She had gone down to the mailbox. She was at home. She lives with her parents up in Summit Valley on Summit Valley Road. She'd gone down to the mailbox to get the mail, which is um, normal for her. She's, she's been doing it for a long time. If you don't know Lori, she struggles with some dementia problems. Uh, she's in her mid-50s. And uh, so she went to the mailbox to get the mail. And her, her parents 
kind of dozed off a little bit in the afternoon after eating lunch. And um, anyway, when they kind of started looking around, it's like, whoa, where did Lori go? And she was nowhere to be found. She was gone again. So in that afternoon, you know, so obviously the family and different people close by started looking and, and they just couldn't find her. And so I got the text. It's like, hey, we need to, we need to do it again. We need to go look. We need to go. We need to get as many people as fast as possible and get up here. And uh, I will say that the response and the organization this week on Monday night and Tuesday morning was far superior than last summer. Uh, uh, great, uh, great job by all of our local agencies for from the Stevens County Sheriff's Department, Search and Rescue, Border Patrol, um, Fish and Game. Uh, they were there. They were there quick. They were there in force. They were there with equipment. Um, helicopter came in from, uh, from Fairchild Air Force Base um, with thermal. And people just started to amass on this home. I mean, people, there was just... I mean, the more we looked, every time we got back up to the house to look again, there was, you know, ten more cars than there were the time before. So people were really showing up in force. And, um, and if you guys recall what Monday night was like, by the time that sun started to go down, it got cold. It was getting chilly. And uh, I'd made a particular call to, as I was preparing to go up, Tammy and I and Michaela, I particularly called Matt Allwine, uh, for one reason, uh, well, more than one reason, A, uh, if somebody can find somebody, oftentimes it's Matt, but two, he's got gizmos, he's got toys that are beneficial. When you're looking for somebody at dark, he's got a thermal uh, scope that he can put on a rifle, but you take it off the rifle, and so we use that in combination between that and the helicopter and the drones, looking from the top down and the people fanning out. Matt and I were part of a crew with the dogs. Misty was there with her dogs. And, um, I mean, we were, we were fran I would say, almost frantically searching, primarily because Monday night it got down to the mid to lower 20s up there. And she didn't have a coat on. And we're thinking, man alive, how is she going to survive? And so we got to find her. Uh, she's lost. we got to find her. And... Uh, I think we got home maybe at one thirty, two in the morning. We were up early in, on Tuesday morning to go back up and to, to re-search. Um, part of the area is wide open fields and pastures. Part of it's really thick, dense brush that you literally have to just pry your way, step through, pry your way, step through. There's fences. There's cattle. There's, I mean, it's a farming community. And so, Tuesday morning as we showed up and the Border Patrol came in with uh, two trailer loads of, of guys with horses, guys and gals on horseback, other neighbors started to show up on horseback as well. And uh, above where she lives, there's, uh, they border state property and there's 750 acres of pasture slash timber ground uh, uphill at the base of of Dunn Mountain up in Summit Valley and uh, so the two fellas, good friends of mine, while the, the son plays football for me in Chewila, Gunnar Hofstetter 
and his dad, Sean, they decided, hey, we'll go, we'll go uphill because we know that pasture ground, and we'll go up and start searching up there. And everybody else kind of fanned out, made a plan on how they could grid this thing out, either horseback or on four-wheelers, on foot. You know, the night before, there was a push of about 50 people that walked from Summit Valley Road. So if you can envision with me, Summit Valley Road and down below is Addie Gifford Road, and it's about a half a mile through there. Uh, 40 people, 40, 50 people fanned out, you know, 10 feet apart and uh, made a big push from one road to the next. And I mean, so we were really, we were really getting after it because we were, we were really concerned because of how cold it was. But on Tuesday morning, as everybody started into the search, the Hofstetter fellas, they decided to cover a piece of ground that they rent as pasture, so they're very familiar with it. And it's steep, it's rugged, it's brushy. There's a lot of wet spots, a lot of holes, um, some real steep ravines. And uh, as we were all out searching, um, we got a phone call that Gunner had found her uh, Tuesday morning. And she was alive. <laughs> We're thinking, how in the world did she survive? How in the world did she survive another uh, a night out there? I mean, we were freezing when we got home. How did she survive that cold temperature? So as it was, she ended up leaving the mailbox. She walked back up the driveway. She walked right past the house. And she went right up on that state ground. And she was on a south slope the warmest possible place you could be in that condition. And uh, she was waiting for her dad. She was waiting for her dad. That's what, those were her words. She said, I'm, just, I'm waiting for my dad. And uh, I thought a lot about Luke 15 in the, the few days after that, how... She didn't even know she was lost, yet she was waiting for her father. I believe, personally, I was talking to some of the guys that we searched with, and Tammy and I have talked about this a fair amount this week, that um, because of her dementia struggles, there's an innocence, there's an innocence, so to speak, that's actually beneficial for Lori in the two given situations that she's been in here in the last year. There's an innocence because she doesn't panic. There's no appearance that she panicked at all. There's an innocence that, uh, and, and that goes with this idea, that, I believe anyway, that uh, she didn't panic. She, you and I, we would get lost in the woods, and we'd start thinking, oh no, we're lost. And we would, and fear would start to set in. With fear comes a shot of adrenaline, like, what do I do now? We start realizing that, wow, it's getting bitterly cold out here, and I don't have a coat on, I don't have gloves on, I don't have any snow gear on. And, and, and the realities of our environment set in in such a way that, that, that we would get, under normal circumstances, we would get fearful uh, we would get that shot of adrenaline. With that shot of adrenaline, once that adrenaline's all <laughs> done and over with, then we're wiped out, we're thirsty, we're tired. We're, we're all these sorts of things where I believe with Lori, she had this, this innocence about her where none of those things came into play. She simply got up on a kind of an open spot that was warm 
and was waiting for her dad. It's a remarkable story, uh, a remarkable week, you know, <laughs> exhilarating and, and frightening in some senses. Yet when we got that phone call that, uh, you know, that Gunner had found her on his last pass in that particular area, um, it was something. And, uh, and we're excited. And in turn, so she came down. She got checked out by first responders. She was fine. She was thirsty. Uh, we give her some water, some Gatorade. But other than that, she was totally fine. And so um, as people are all standing around up at the Alby residence, somebody said, hey, every, they got a huge buffet of lunch down at the church, down at the Summit Church. Everybody's welcome. And so we went down and... and uh, kind of swapped our stories of the surge. We celebrated. Uh, we gave thanks to God. And, and, uh, and the rest of Tuesday, life kind of carries on. And I remember all those events, so apparently I don't have much of a concussion, Tim. So that's a good thing. But let's dive into this idea. Let's dive into this idea of that one thing. All that effort that goes into finding the one. We're going to see three great examples out of Luke 15. We're going to see three examples of, of a kingdom value that God is all about. And that's finding the one. That's finding the one that's lost. And so let's dive in there. Luke chapter 15. To set the... Uh, kind of just set the stage for this passage. I wasn't going to read the first three verses, but I think it's important that we do. So Luke 15, uh, verse 1. And it might, these three might not be on the screen, but I'm going to read them. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, So Jesus is already hanging out with a tough crowd. Let's just put it that way. Right? And now he's getting, uh, he, he, he's getting this blowback from the Pharisees, from the religious leaders, from the people that were supposed to be caring for these people. We're supposed to be ministering to these people. He gets a lot of pushback about even hanging out with them. So these are his words about that. Verse 4. What man of you, having... A hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who needs no repentance. And Jesus takes it right to the Pharisees. There was no mistake who was who in this parable for them. Because they didn't, they, it was obvious to them that they didn't need any repentance. But Jesus is laying out a kingdom value that's far different than what they think. Far different than what they understand. Far different than what they were promoting in that day. 
Sheep by nature are not, uh, they're not really unruly animals. There's a, I thought about playing this. There's a, there's a meme on, fa- on fa- well, I saw it on Facebook, and I know you guys, most people are not. I'm a kind of a big meme guy, as long as it's good and it's funny. But there's this meme of this cow that's coming out of a chute that rears up, and these two guys are trying to deal with it, rears up and literally just like tackles this farmer and like almost tackles him to the ground when his buddy comes in and takes wipes out the the steer's back feet because it's up like on two and he's really coming after this guy he's like got him in almost a full bear hug and his buddy comes in and just wipes out the steer's back feet and together they wrangle this thing down when i think when i say unruly that's an unruly animal right it's like my two buddies uh bill and nathan they Recently, the guys that buy on my feed, they recently bought uh, two small beef herds from two different fellas. And, and in preparation for getting all of those beef cows together and bringing them back to their place, they had to you know, round them up, they had to work them, and they had to rebrand them, they had to give them shots, they had to do a bunch of stuff and then load them up in a trailer and haul them home. And uh, Bill was telling me two of these beef cows chased him and an employee up and over the fence. Two different cows did this this one day. And those cows hit that fence, you know, bam, to the point where their noses were bleeding. You know, that's unruly. Sheep aren't that way. Sheep are just kind of going to look at you and kind of like, what? You know, they're, they're not unruly. They're not rebellious in that sense. Are they? And they don't really tend to run off intentionally. Uh, sheep have more of a tendency to do this. They have a tendency to just wander off. They have a tendency to just kind of wander off. So now they're just kind of eating along and, oh, there's more to eat over there. Oh, there's more to eat over there. And the next thing you know, they're out of sight, right? They're not just going to flee necessarily. And they really don't know that they're lost uh, until they're lost. It's interesting, God's response, all three of these, is a picture of the Heavenly Father and His response to people. God goes after the lost. A lot of times the sentence stops at that word. A lot of times we just think, or we say, or we communicate, or it's communicated to us that God goes after the lost. That's not what the Bible says. In What the Bible says is God goes after the lost. The shepherd went after that sheep. When and how? Until he found it. He didn't give up. He didn't stop. He didn't take a break. He didn't say that that's far enough. I can't go any further. He didn't get tired like we got tired on Monday night, actually Tuesday morning. He didn't get cold. It doesn't say that he got cold. It doesn't say that he was frustrated. He simply is fixated on finding that one. And he's going to go until he finds it. That's the shepherd. That's the shepherd's role. He never gives up. His second response is, is that he returns to the... He returns to the fold by carrying that lamb on his shoulders. 
It's a great picture of how God, when God finds us, we can insert ourselves into the story real easy, that how when God found me, he carried me back to the fold by his power. He didn't find me. He didn't find you. He didn't find the believers that you know and lift you up and dust you off and pump you up full of energy and then say, all right, go about your business. He carries us back to the fold. He carries us back to, to the, the group where there's safety. He carries us back in where there's great pasture, where there's great water, where there's safety and security in amongst those that are the same. But He does that. He does that. That's His role. That's the shepherd's role. Then, of course, He parties. He rejoices and He wants others to rejoice with Him. He's excited. He's excited that He found that one and he wants others to be excited as well. Right? You really see that. Uh, we really saw that Tuesday morning. Uh, my, good, <laughs> my good buddy Sean and his son Gunnar were almost like speechless, which if you know Sean Hofstetter, he's never speechless. Um, he's a cowboy type and a trucker, and he'll get on the phone with me and he'll just talk endlessly. Um, and um, he's seldom speechless, but he was almost speechless, right? That's how excited they were. That's how the moment hit them. And then as we got down to the house, it became this massive celebration of hugs and how are you doing and and where did you find her, and what condition was she in, and, and how come we didn't look there last night? Nobody thought about going above the house really that far on Monday night. Everything was leading us downhill towards, the, towards Lori's sister's place in that general direction, and she didn't, she didn't take that path. There was a lot of rejoicing, obviously, when we found her. And there's a massive amount of rejoicing in heaven, Jesus says, when one sinner repents. Likewise, I say to you, verse 10, that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, these Pharisees thought they had a corner on the market on heavenly celebration because of how good that they were and how good they seemed to be up front. Jesus brings out this totally, uh, the total 180 perspective from heaven. Uh, it's not that way. Sorry, fellas. Yeah, your goodness will get you some claps here on earth. But let me tell you how heaven, what gets heaven excited. And what he gets heaven excited is is when that one is found, when that one sinner repents. Let's move on. I just read the wrong verse. 
let me rephrase the verse that I was thinking of is verse 7. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. It's kind of a repeat over than the 99 just persons who need no repentance. That's his statement to them. He goes on to say, the next one, or what woman, verse 8, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, here's verse 10, Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, ladies, a little show of hands. Everybody gets a vote here. If you're married, uh, have you ever lost your wedding ring? Don't be shy. Oh. Come on, somebody help me out. Somebody. Oh, you didn't lose your... How? Uh-huh. Uh-oh. And when he flipped out, he wanted to get something out of his pocket. It flipped in the air and rolled. It flew clear to the door, rolled under a, a, a stand that we put all our boots and stuff on, and there it lied. And nobody knew where it was. For two weeks. Two weeks? <laughs> well, this is a good parable for you. Yeah. Nobody likes to monkey around with mama's wedding ring. That's a given. Guys, guys understand this intuitively, right? Where it's like, nope, jewelry, not for me. Anybody else? Karen? Wow. Doesn't a little panic set in? Like when you know it's gone, when you know it's, like for those of you that have lost your, you'll notice I don't, I don't have a wedding ring on. Uh, I almost don't have a left finger because of my wedding ring. And so uh, I actually choose not to wear it. Uh, I thought about having a T tattooed on my finger, but um, I haven't done that yet. But... Uh, yeah, when it's gone, it's like panic. And what does your wedding ring have to do anything with this parable? It actually does have to do with this parable. The particular coin that is uh, mentioned here was likely part of a set of ten that was worn as jewelry, not as we would think of loose change in our pocket. It was a coin that was set as a, a part of ten. And it was, it was symbolic in the same way for them, the same way that it is for you ladies uh, to wear your wedding ring. That's why, it's, that's why I asked the question, who's lost their wedding ring? See, coins don't have a mind of their own. They don't have a, uh, uh, a particular game plan. They don't have an agenda. They don't just get up off of the counter, off of the, you know... Uh, dresser or nightstand and just walk off as much as we would like to think that sometimes maybe that's what's happened 
And just like Betty's story, uh, or Karen's story, uh, they're subject to this law, wedding rings are, or the coin in this parable. They're subject to this law, simply they're subject to the law of gravity. So where that goes, and however it got flipped up, eventually it started to fall, and it got lost, or it fell on the bathroom floor, and uh, fortunately somebody saw it and picked it up, right? Coins just fall, they bounce, they roll around. But there's a response here by the lady that's symbolic of God's response to us just falling and bouncing and rolling around in life. God's response is this. Is he shines, he sweeps, and he searches. Look at those verses. Jesus lays it out. Now, he didn't say shine, but essentially that's what's happened. Or what woman having a silver coin, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And Jesus and God likes to put light into the darkness of our situation. That's his role. That's his job when we're lost. That's his job for everybody that's lost. For the believer, the Holy Spirit brings light into your situation and say, Oh, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't keep going there. He keeps shining light of the Word of God. He shines the light of conviction into our lives. Don't go there, go there. That type of light. And just like the lady looking for her coin, first you need a little light in your dark situation. Then God comes to clean out the dirt that surrounds us. Not sure exactly, they don't say where this coin had fallen to. But no doubt if it was down in the dirty boots, it probably wasn't really that clean. So there's some sweeping, there's some cleaning. There's some organizing that goes on. That's all part of God's role and God's response. And again, it says that he searched. She searched. We see that God searches for us. And again, it says, until she, what? Finds it. It's a wonderful picture of God, again, to say, He's not giving up until He finds what's valuable to Him. He's not giving up until He finds the things that are valuable to Him. God wants to rejoice and celebrate the loss of... <clears throat> He wants to rejoice and celebrate over even one person. Let's look at the next one. Luke 15, verse 11 says, Then he said, Jesus speaking, Then he said, A certain man has two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, This is a very, very popular parable of Jesus. Most of us know it. Most of us have read it. Most of us uh, have at least heard it on one or many occasions. We're going to go through it again and look at a particular aspect of it. But a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them 
<clears throat> so he divided to them his livelihood. A little insertion there for in those days for a, a son to ask for his inheritance ahead of time was uh, equivalent to essentially telling his parents, you're dead to me, I want to move on with life. Give me what I got coming and let me go do my own thing. That's the MO, that's the mentality, that's the pattern at hand here by this younger son. And the father obliged him and verse 13 says, and not many days after the younger son gathered all together, he journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. Uh-oh. Uh, bad choices put you in bad situations. Nobody escapes the consequences, uh, good or bad, of the decisions that we make. Um, we all have to uh, bear that, as it were, and this young fellow that Jesus is talking about was in the same boat. He began to be in want. Verse 15, then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent, <clears throat> and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. When it says that he joined himself to a citizen of that country, he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about becoming an indentured servant for the sake of survival. So now he's feeding the hogs, which for a Jewish fella was uh, probably the worst of the worst duties of all. And verse 16 says, And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So not as only as he cooked through all of dad's inheritance, all of dad's money, everything that he gave him, with wild living, chasing around, whatever he was doing, said prodigal living, my version says. Uh, now he's had to uh, voluntarily become a slave. And then he, in that voluntary state, he's had to do a job that is detestable. I'm taking the liberty to say that because Jesus was a Jew and he was speaking to Jews, he specifically kind of created this scenario that it was even more grotesque for a Jewish fella in that day to have to take care of an animal that in their culture was unclean. So there's all that goes with all of that. Not only did he have to do all that, now he gets to the spot where he still, frankly, doesn't have anything. And nobody was willing to give him anything. Verse 17 says, But when he came to himself, when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This is the one lost son. Really, in the story, there's two lost sons. That might be a sermon for another, another day. I don't know, maybe I'll have time to insert a few thoughts there. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when he understood where he was, how far he had sunk, 
how, far he, how much he had wasted in the process of trying to do his own thing, how hungry he was, how enslaved he was voluntarily, how bad off his life really was. The Bible says he came to himself. He came to his senses. He started to realize a few things. Hey, 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 hey. The, greens, the grass is not so green over here. It isn't so green. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish here in hunger? I, I've blown it. I've completely blown it. Like if I was in the same situation back at my dad's place, I would at least have some food, and I got nothing. He's coming to grips with the gravity of how lost he really is. So he makes a plan. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. There's repentance. See, Jesus is zeroing back in on the previous two parables where he says there's rejoicing. There's a party in heaven when one comes to the truth of where they really are. We don't see that perspective all the time. Tuesday morning gives us a glimpse, even in an earthly and humanly sense, of how important it is to find somebody. This guy comes to his senses. He develops the right plan with right thinking, right theology. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm out of bounds. I've missed the mark with what I'm doing. I've cooked through it all. I've got nothing left. And in that position, he finds, hey, I, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just make me a hired servant so I don't starve to death. And he executes the plan. Verse 20. And he rose and he came to his father, but it was still a great ways off. The father saw him and had compassion. And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned. So he's executing his plan. He's in the right frame of mind. He understands the gravity of what he's done. So now in repentance, and also with the mind of reconciliation, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, just as he had planned just as he thought about, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his hand. Hey, that lost ring. I wonder if it's the same lost ring. I don't think so. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son who was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. 
It's a great picture of the Heavenly Father when one that has walked away returns. When one that has pilfered through all the good stuff and gets down to zero or less than zero in his pocket. I'd say, I guess, less than zero if he's willing to you know, put himself out there as a slave. Then he decides, hey, wait a minute, this ain't right. This is not right. His thinking changes, his game plan becomes biblically right and, and true, relationally right and true, and he goes back. And you see the role of the father and all that he lavishes on this son, the son that has walked away physically, and how he treats him and how he wants to celebrate his return. There was another son who didn't walk away physically. He didn't have the right, he wasn't right either. Now his older son, it says in verse 25, says, His older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard the music and the dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Why are we having a big celebration? Nobody told me. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry, the older brother was would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these things, these many years I have been serving you. I've never, excuse me, I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of, as soon as this son of yours, wouldn't even call him his brother, wow, Soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. And it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead. See how the, brother, see how the father addresses to the older brother, who frankly is being a jerk, who stuck on himself, worried about himself, Worried about the fact that he's here slave and away and he never has any fun. And this son of yours, he says to his dad, talking of his own brother. Notice how the father returns that? And he says, your brother. He's your brother. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is now found. See, from the father's perspective, because his younger son had taken off, no word, no text, no instant message, no Instagram, no Insta nothing, the younger brother just decided, I'm done with this life. I'm out of here. The father's perspective is is that his youngest son was dead. That's the perspective. And it's, it's emotional for me in the sense that that's where we were when we left Monday night. 
we were fearful, I will say. <laughs> yeah, I know the Bible says, you know, several hundred times, don't fear. I'll tell you what, you leave in the middle of the night from looking for somebody that doesn't have a coat on, and it's 25 degrees, you start being fearful. What are we going to find tomorrow? Are we going to find anything tomorrow? Is she going to be alive? Is she not going to be alive? Are the, all the people, the 20, 30, 40, by the time we, I think we counted them all up, there might have been 60 to 70 people looking, friends, relatives, neighbors, you name it. Are they prepared to find somebody that's not alive? I'll be honest with you, that was one of my biggest struggles. Is our people prepared to find her if she's not alive? If she is indeed dead? And we that were in the search a year ago, a lot of the main players knew that reality could be true. And with every you know, moment through the middle of the night, it become probably more true that Lori probably wasn't going to make it through this cold weather. So our perspective... Even though we had faith that God could do anything, our perspective was a lot like the Father here. This is not good. This is not a good. This is way worse than a year ago. That's what we kept telling each other. This is a lot worse. We have to find her. We have to keep covering ground. We have to find her. This is this is a thousand times worse just because of the cold weather. Father's perspective here is that the younger son was dead. Yet, it's interesting how. He, even with that perspective, the word says that he spent time looking afar off for the son that perhaps would never come home. Yet when that one son was found, <laughs> the first one that was lost, the father then became full of excitement. Full of excitement. See, there's an interesting passage. We've been studying through Romans on Sunday nights, and one of the greatest verses, I think, that uh, is in the Bible, a profound statement about God, is actually in Romans chapter 4. Just so happened that uh, Les was gone uh, this week, and the particular week that we went through chapter 4 of Romans, and I got to share a few things. There was some great dialogue. There's always a great dialogue on, on Sunday nights, and I, I appreciate that about everybody that's involved. Romans chapter 4, verse 17, basically makes this statement. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, if you're a grammar nut and you look at that sentence, you would say, that doesn't make any sense. God in the present, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist, present tense, as though they did, past tense. Isn't that sentence backwards? Like, shouldn't like, the past be come before the present? But from God's perspective, uh, he's the only one that gets away with this. My question is, are we willing to embrace a God that can call into existence the things that don't? That was our challenge the other night. Are we willing to, to put our fears aside that she might not be alive 
and allow God to do what only God can do in this situation? And are we good with the outcome either way? See, I'm prone to a preconceived outcome most times. And I have to fight myself, actually, to, to against that, to allow God to work what only God can do. Because I kept thinking, man, we're finding a body. We're finding a body. And I had to go back in my mind to Romans chapter 4 and remind myself of this statement. I had to change my perspective so that I was willing to embrace that God can do only the things that he can do. I love this passage in Romans 4 because Paul goes on to say, talking about Abraham, the whole context of even the statement is he's using Abraham as an example. So he goes on to say in verse 18, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. That's what God spoke to him. Verse 19 says, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, and therefore, and therefore God said to Abraham and about Abraham, and it's recorded, but it's true of us also, that it was accredited to him as righteousness. I love the descriptive language in these things. I love the attributes that are put out there looking at Abraham. He wasn't weak in faith. No, he, he hoped. Who contrary to hope? And he hoped and believed, it says. Right? Not being weak in faith. He didn't waver at God's promise. Rather, he was strengthened in faith. And he was strengthened in a particular way. Verse 20 says, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So his strengthening of his faith created celebration. It created praise. It created worship for Abraham, giving glory to God. And he was fully convinced that God would come through on his promise. That's verse 21 and 22. What was the promise? What was that one thing that was lost for Abraham and Sarah? What was that one thing that they couldn't find? What was that one thing, what was that one coin that they needed God to find for them? What was that one sheep, that one lamb that they needed God to find for them? What was that one lost son, and his name was Isaac, who didn't even exist, yet Abraham believed. Abraham had faith. Did he do it all perfectly? We can go back and read the accounts of Genesis. No, he did not. But he kept believing. 
He took his rebuke from God and he kept believing in the original promise. He kept walking forward. He kept doing what God called him to do and being who God called him to be and believing in the promise that God called him to believe in. And that one thing for him that was lost was his son Isaac. That one thing that he looked for intently, that one thing that was hidden, that one thing that was, once he was here, miracle, because it talks about Abraham considering himself being dead, 100 years old, Sarah being 90. Hey, we're not having any kids. Let's face the reality of life, right? Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. God over, God's not held back by what we think can't happen. Let's just put that out on the front bumper to start with. God is not, he's not phased by our unbelief. No, not in a bit. Even when they had Isaac, the reality that they would keep him was tested. And it's amazing how Abraham walked that through knowing God would provide. Regardless of the outcome, God would provide. And it was accounted to him as righteousness because he believed in faith. A couple of closing questions before David comes to lead us in communion. Who is your one? I put these things in quotes. I think that you get the point. What is your one thing? Who is your one person? What is that one thing that God is, is, is looking for for you? What is lost and, and, and needs God to find it? Let's put it that way. Who is your one? What's your one situation is the next question I have. Do we believe that God is pursuing that one thing? If it's you, do you believe that God is pursuing you? If it's somebody that you love that you know is not a believer, do you believe that God is pursuing them? If it's something that's crashed and burned, if it's a marriage, if it's a, a friendship, a relationship, if it's, if it's uh, some brokenness in our life, it's, if it's our finances, our marriages, our kids... Could be somebody right here in this room. Could be somebody that you work with. Are we believing that God is finding that thing that is lost, that thing that is broken, that thing that is missing, that thing that is unwhole, that component of a set of ten in our lives, that coin that makes that set whole, that makes it right? Are we believing that God can find that? Are we believing that God is pursuing that? in our lives and are we willing to trust in that pursuit we have to believe that God is doing these things and do we believe that that pursuit ultimately will bring about a good result if we lose sight of the fact that what God is doing is good it won't matter anyway right if we lose sight of the fact that what God is doing is going to bring about a good result, regardless of how tough it can be in the meantime, 
uh, it won't really mean as much. It won't really matter. We'll move on. We'll ask for our stuff to go too. Right? We'll just move on through life. Or we'll be really, really frustrated with our Heavenly Father. Because He didn't give us what we wanted when we wanted it. But do we believe that it's true about God? That His pursuit of the things that are lost will bring about a good result. David, will you come on up and lead us in communion?